This podcast is part of a pod course offered for ASHA CEU credit through SpeechTherapyPD.com. As part of the December to Remember sales event, SpeechTherapyPD.com is offering all pod courses for $9.99 apiece through the end of December. That's more than 35 episodes of First Bite with Michelle Dawson and The Speech Link with Char Beauchart for just $9.99 apiece. To get this discount, simply use the code JOY at checkout. SpeechTherapyPD.com is a certified ASHA CE provider. Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. Hey, hey, I hope you're still loving these podcasts and pod courses sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. But have I left y'all wanting more? Well, then come on and join me for a live action class. On Wednesday, January 23rd, I'll be in Toledo, Ohio. On Thursday, January 24th, I'm in Indianapolis, Indiana. And on Friday, January 25th, I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio, presenting a six-hour ASHA and IOTA-approved CE event. Pediatric Dysphagia, Establishing the Brain-Mouth-Gut Connection, sponsored by Pessy Inc. Don't forget to pack your latex-free gloves, a snack, and a drink. We will be comedically and functionally engaging the oral preparatory stage of our swallows and sharing the fascination of our double chins. Be sure to check out registration on my website or Facebook page, heartwoodspeechtherapy.com, or go direct to www.pessy.com. See y'all soon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast was, like most creative processes, birthed from a combination of several cups of coffees and, honestly, even more questions posed by a series of impassioned graduate students that I've had the pleasure of supervising over the last several years. First Bite's mission to answer those questions that we've all had, but we've either been too afraid to ask or we didn't have the subject matter expert saved to our own personal speed dials. So, do you too have more questions and answers when it comes to treating your medically complex and fragile pediatric patients? Are you unsure if the signs and symptoms that you're observing are indicative of an allergy, maybe an underlying GI issues, or could they possibly be neurologically driven? How many questions do you really have for that registered dietitian regarding the formulas prescribed and the flow rate through that patient's G-tube? Have you ever been consulted for a quote-unquote difficult latch only to find out that the mother is exclusively breastfeeding, but you've never nursed a little one or worked with the breastfed patient before? And what about functional communication? Are you so over flashcards, but you need advice on how to get started with core vocabulary with a non-speech generating device or how to find the right fit for a speech generating device? 
Do you have additional worries about the basic day-to-day running and documentation of your private practice? How do you go about obtaining referrals or even documenting that note so that the insurance company deems it medically necessary? If you answered yes, well, then come join me, Michelle Dawson, for this dynamic podcast presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Who am I, you ask? Well, I'm a self-described SLP geek with, as my family says, a touch of the ADD and ADHD. I have a passion for serving the least of these, namely the most complex and involved pediatric patients in their natural environment through my private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in the Columbia, South Carolina metro area. I also have had the pleasure, and currently still am, traveling the country where I lecture on best practices for pediatric dysphagia and functional language acquisition delivered through an early intervention natural environment model. Are you still intrigued? Then come join me as I interview some amazing folks. And don't forget that you can submit questions for a Q&A or interview request topics to me via email at firstbite at speechtherapypd.com or on our Facebook page. And also check out our website, drop a review, subscribe to obtain those coveted ASHA CEUs. All right, folks, let's get right to it. Welcome back to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host, Michelle Dawson, the all things peds SLP. The topic of today falls in the functional category, and we are talking all things ethics. What? What was that that I just heard? A collective fearful sigh of doom. Yep, been there and had that thought too. I was the gal who thought Asha was big brother watching over my shoulder, ready to chastise me at every drop of the hat. But it turns out Asha is so very much more than that. If you look at it from a different perspective, borrow my rose-colored glasses view, then you too will see that Asha is here to build us up, support us while we support the little ones that we have been called to serve, and that the code of ethics is there to protect us and them not berate, belittle, or to live in constant state of fear from. So is your heart rate back to that lovely little resting rate where it should be? Or should we do a few more breathing exercises? I'm going to assume you're rested and go ahead and introduce our next speaker, Dr. Lissa Powerdefer, PhD, CCC, SLP. I first met this woman several years ago when I was a graduate student at James Madison University. However, I was in the first Delve cohort, Distance Learning for Virginia Educators. This was a lovely program designed for speech teachers working in the schools in Virginia to pursue their master's while still working full-time. Dr. Power Defer was the epitome of grace, poise, and ironclad stability for me personally when I was going through a very turbulent first marriage. And on a personal note, as I've said before, if you're in a domestic abuse situation, get out. It's glorious what's in store for you on the other side. Um, Dr. Powderford, I don't think you realize that you were one of the first women in our field who nurtured my soul professionally at a time when my personal world was crumbling into an abyss. I am indebted to you for the seeds that you planted and consider today's adventure and outgrowth of your work from so very many years ago which is why I have so much color on my hair. (laughs) So 
on that note, um, before my Irish leaks all over the place, um, let me pull it together, drink some tea. Um, tell us about you and how you came to be the amazing person that you are before we jump headfirst into all things ethics and early intervention. My goodness, Michelle, I'm, I'm overwhelmed by your kind comments that um, I think that we all have opportunities to pay it forward and to support other people. And I'm glad that we had that opportunity to chat so many years ago. Um, I have the great honor of doing a lot of work in ethics that um, I served our association and the Board of Ethics many years ago in the mid-2000s, and I considered it one of the best volunteer opportunities I ever had that I've, I've probably spent 30 years in some way volunteering for ASHA, and before that I volunteered for my state association. And um, it was truly an honor for me to be invited to serve on the Board of Ethics. It was a time when I learned exactly what you said, Michelle, is that um, the Board of Ethics role is to maintain the high standards for the profession, but it's not and the whole issue of ethics is not there to beat us up. It's there to be um, guide us in making our decisions. Um, I've done a lot of presentations on ethical decision-making, trying to support people in thinking through ethical dilemmas and how do they come out with a solution that's a win-win that enables the difficult situation to be resolved without causing major challenges for everybody. I then had the opportunity to serve the association as a vice president of standards and ethics in speech language pathology 2014 to 16, which was another just an amazing growth opportunity for me and a huge honor. I teach at Longwood University. I've taught the ethics and professional issues course here since we started our grad program in 2006. Before that, I've worked as a clinician. I've worked as a special ed administrator at the State Department of Education. And I also taught at Radford University. So that's my background. Got um, wonderful husband, wonderful children, and grandchildren. Oh my goodness! How old are your grands? Seven months to eleven. Oh, a baby. Oh. Yep. Yes, I've got baby fever and missing body parts to do the thing. So, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> smell that grand for me. Um, yeah. And, and if memory serves correct, your state association is Shav, which I'm a little biased. Right up there with Skisha towards Shav because uh, it's great. Yep. Yep. That's um, Speech and Hearing Association of Virginia. If you're a Virginian, make sure you join. Uh, actually, whatever state you're in, make sure you join your state association. ASHA does a ton, ton, ton for us as professionals, but changes in state laws come from the work of state associations, and they need every one of us who are speech-language pathologists as part of their group. Yes, they do. And I am living, breathing, eating that currently in South Carolina, and I'm telling you, we listen and we can only work to rectify a situation if you bring it to our attention. We don't know what exactly. we don't know. So exactly. share it, advocate it, fight it. Um, to quote my daddy, if you're going to complain about it with one breath, with the second breath, put your big girl panties on. Or if you're a gent, put your britches on and work to resolve it. So, exactly. Yep. Okay, so now that we've um, let our Virginia root show there, Dr. Perrotiver. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have so many questions, and all of these stem from heartfelt situations, um, some that I've personally encountered, um, some that have I've, I've witnessed um, others and colleagues encountering. So thank you for taking the time for this. 
Um, sure. I'm looking forward to the conversation. All right. Well, then. Huzzah! Okay. I like, I'm like rubbing my hands together in excitement. Um, this is one that for me personally, I'm kind of interested in. There are so many new doctorates available for speech pathologists right now. Yep. And it's confusing to me as when we should use them professionally. Like, can you be called doctor so-and-so if you have like an educational doctorate, but are in your role of a speech pathologist and where exactly do all the different doctorates lead you? If you wanted to be a professor or a researcher or the head of a rehab department. So Sure. Let's dive into that. Okay. I think that the ethical issue is that we have to represent who we are and our credentials. And so if we represent ourselves as um, Dr. Dawson, Dr. Jones, we need to have a label on that makes it clear that we're not a doctor that's an MD. Because many people in the community assume when you use the term doctor that you are an MD. And so if you've got a name tag on that's got your um, name and your credential of an ED, or an SLPD or a PhD, and you refer to yourself as doctor, then it's clear what it is. Um, A person with an EDD, with an SLPD, or a PhD, those are all earned doctorates, and the term doctoral doctor is very appropriate for those persons. So folks shouldn't feel uncomfortable with that. I think it's just the matter of clarity, um, given the fact that we still are not well understood by the general public as a profession. That's why it's pretty important to make clear that we are not an MD. So the different degrees you can have. The PhD is generally considered the research degree. Um, Speech-language pathology graduate programs must have a certain number of faculty that have a PhD on it, and that's for the presumption that the PhD supports students in their knowledge of and growth in the area of research. When you, sorry to interrupt, but when you go ahead, no. When you say they have to have a certain number of faculty with the PhD, is that in order to have? Um, ASHA certification or the Council for Academic Accreditation certification? Graduate programs are accredited by the Council of Academic Accreditation. A person who is pursuing their certificate of clinical competence has to graduate from a CAA program. There are ways you can get the CCC without it, but it's much more laborious. So it's just kind of a quick checkbox if the person graduates from a CAA accredited program. There is no magic number. The key is, are there enough PhD faculty to support the research side of the graduate program? Gotcha. Okay. So there's been a bit of a growth in clinical doctorates. There are, I think, maybe half a dozen programs around the country, maybe a tad more, um, that offer an SLPD or something comparable to that. Um, There is no particular title which is agreed upon for um, the clinical doctorate, those doctoral programs are generally focused on providing the skills for an advanced clinician. They generally pair an intense amount of clinical experience with the doctoral coursework. An EDD is generally an education degree. There are a lot more of those available, and many persons pursuing a doctorate can find an EDD is more generally available. For somebody in our field, you will generally find that they have done their area of research in something related to our field. Um, Then a few folks may get a PhD in gerontology as opposed to speech-language pathology and early childhood. So there are a variety of ways for persons to pursue that doctorate. 
there is no credential requirement for a doctoral degree. All master's degrees must meet the same requirements of the Council of Academic Accreditation. They'll put it together in a slightly different package with courses of different names, but ultimately they all provide the same basic education. There's no such standard at the doctoral level. So if you or your listeners are thinking of pursuing a doctorate and thinking of a clinical doctorate because you want to be clinicians, ASHA has a really nice document on what to think about in terms of a clinical doctoral program, what you should look for. And so I recommend folks take a look at that. I didn't know that we had that resource. We do. It, um, at, it is more for the focus on what it should be in the program, and then you can take a look at the program you're looking at and see if it meets that expectation. I, I have to say, I have always dreamed of getting a doctorate personally. Good for um, you. Yeah, I think, but do you know how hard it is to find a doctorate in pediatric dysphagia? When you find it, let me know because like, I'm still on the hunt. And and people that want to specialize at that level, you won't find a doctorate in that area. What you'll find is a, a, a doctoral degree in uh, speech-language pathology, and then you specialize in your coursework and your research in pediatric dysphagia. Or you find a clinical doctorate where you specialize in that. Um, or you could often get a degree outside of speech-language pathology in a medical setting, um, maybe a human resources or a rehab scientist area, and then you specialize according to what your passion is. There's there's a really good one down in Charleston, and it's a PhD in rehabilitative medicine. And yes, that'd be a great place. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, we say that, but that requires a move away from the Midlands. And so, you know, tiny humans would... Um, and I don't like hurricanes, so I'm hesitant to move closer. So you're hesitant to do that. Yeah, I can understand that. Oh, okay. All right. So um, is when we're introducing ourselves to um, professionals and to families, and I, I have worried about that, if they're not acting – so if you have an educational doctorate all the way to a PhD, you can still introduce yourself as Dr. Billy Bob Joe. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Cause that's the part that has worried me because I was under working under the impression that an educational doctorate with research and like special education did not carry over into the world of speech pathology. Well, the degree is the degree, and we turn to kind of the standards for how you represent yourself. And um, I came to understand that the publishing world has a standard for how you refer to yourself. And so the person who has an earned doctorate can refer to themselves as doctor. Now, personally, I'm going to introduce myself to the family as Lissa Power Defer. I'm your speech and language pathologist, and then I'm going to sign my name with my credentials on it. so I don't often use the doctor when I introduce myself, except on occasion when it's necessary to establish that. I often think that using the credential can be a barrier with families. Um, and so I use it judiciously. I find that I have to code switch even technical terminology. If I walk in using yep. professional jargon, it overwhelms if I go in and let exactly the exactly they're not afraid. This podcast is brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. SpeechTherapyPD.com is an engaging, evidence-based continuing education site that offers over 450 continuing education hours. The best part? The information garnered can be applied in therapy immediately. 
It's functional and fabulous without the hassle of trying to translate technical jargon from a research article. Can I entice you more? Well, then get your suntan lotion ready because next summer, SpeechTherapyPD.com is hosting a CEU cruise. That's right. July 27th through August 3rd of 2019, the amazing, delightful, and oh-so-kind Char Beauchart, M-A-C-C-C-S-L-P, will be the featured speaker for 12-plus continuing education hours on a cruise ship through Greece. That's right. You heard it right. Greece. Want to get the preview or want to catch a preview of the information she's going to share? Then tune into her pod course, The Speech Link, which is also eligible for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Maybe, oh, just maybe, I'll see y'all in Greece. Okay. All right. Question one down. Thank you. All right. Sure. What's number two? Number two. Ha. This age old debate. Okay. To bag or not to bag in the natural environment. So the why behind this, um, ASHA has a position statement out, um, and I've referenced it in other courses, um, that a position statement specifically regarding early intervention therapists. And it states we're supposed to focus on natural environment learning. Here in South Carolina, BabyNet, which is our birth to three-year-old intervention IDEA Part C response, um, it has a bagless policy. However, it's not really enforced, and that's been a challenge. I mean, I know professionally I started out bringing bags in because that's what I was trained to do by, like, my supervisor at the job. And then I found out about Baby Nets policy and was like, oh, we're not supposed to do this. So I went bagless, and it was very difficult for the families that I was making the transition with. And then afterwards they saw – how much easier and quicker language acquisition occurred when it was exactly exactly but yeah what is best practice to bag or not to bag in the natural environment in homes not to bag our colleagues in early intervention have identified that the coaching model and this provision of services to these little ones in the natural environment is best if we use what is there um, that it's an opportunity to show family members how what they have in their own home can be used. I mean, we aren't there 24-7. We might be there a few times a month. And the growth in that child's communication is going to come from the family. And if the family feels like, oh, well, I don't have those cool toys that Michelle brought in, so I can't do anything, it stymies them, they're more likely to give up. If you can show them that the pots and pans they have, the tape dispenser that makes noise, the smooth blanket can become a cave. As we play and show how you can play with what's in the environment, it enables families to see, I can do this. I'm thinking of these. So why? Go ahead. I'm I'm thinking of the amount of bagless therapy I've done with like laundry, pretending that it was like, I mean, you know, you can make a cape out of daddy's t-shirt or the rolled up socks that are hopefully clean can turn into basketballs. Yep. Yeah. And yeah, and you can turn the laundry basket over and hide inside it. Mm-hmm. You can go in it. You can come out of it. Um, you can go around the sofa. You can hide behind the door. You can listen for daddy's car when he comes home. Mm-hmm. Daddy's at work. Where's daddy? He's at work. Where's exactly. Mommy? What's yeah. mommy do? Okay. So, what is the. Um, you went a little bit farther when we had talked previously about the billing okay. for the early intervention. Okay. Bagless therapy. 
or when people bring bags in? Can you? Well, I think that the key is that you need to know what the standard is in your state. That um, idea specifies we should be in the natural environment. And I believe all the state early intervention programs are like Virginia and South Carolina, where they expect you to be in the natural environment. You know, that means going to the playground, going to Walmart, doing it wherever the child and family are so the family can be coached in what they can do to support that child's communication. So in Virginia, for example, the uh, billing for early intervention is based on you follow the Virginia model of natural environments. Now, the billing doesn't specify you bring or you don't bring your bag, but that's what's monitored at the state level, that as they are monitoring, they come and they randomly um, monitor um, the IFSPs, they look at the data, and if they see that folks are still, you know, bringing in all their own stuff, that's going to be an area for improvement for that early intervention program. Mm-hmm. Okay, because... Uh- I, mean, I did therapy today at Crackle Barrel because the parents. Yeah. In, I mean, it was delicious. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> My yeah. cholesterol has elevated. But um, so if are, are we allowed to bill for a therapy session then if we bring our bags of stuff in or is that a state by state case based off of their policy? That would be a state by state issue that most of the most of these services are going to be billed to Medicaid. Many of them are going to be billed to private insurance, and so it's going to be depending on the standard in your state. Um, Medicaid, as you all know, is a state-specific program. So the rules for Medicaid in South Carolina may be completely different when you cross the line and go into North Carolina. So um, clinicians need to be mindful of what the standards are in their states. Right. And I know South Carolina's got a policy that we're supposed to be bagless. So, right. I mean, it's, it's, it's there. And it's kind of scary. You know, I started doing early intervention when we were the expert who came in and laid hand on the child. And when I started being trained in coaching, it was a little bit tough. But I think that in that remembering our code of ethics, that we are to stay current in our knowledge. We are to continually seek our professional development so that we are staying up to date with evidence-based practice. The evidence for early intervention using a coaching model is well, well established. And it's not just in our field of speech-language pathology. It's established in the field of early childhood and early intervention. And so I think we, um, I realized that I had to kind of get over myself and realize that I needed to become more of a coach. We have um, one lead clinician here at Longwood Speech Hearing Center who does the earlier intervention, and she's just fabulous. And she goes in and teaches our students how she does the coaching and does some modeling with them. And our students are coming out, I think, enriched in how to talk to families. Mm-hmm. That's um, Asha had, was it the October or the November issue of the Asha Leader that specifically talked about early intervention and coaching? Right. It was a recent issue. Yep. It, I can't remember. They're all, they're all on my desk. Yep. <laughs> I was ready to say, they're, they're all in my work bag. And when I have a patient yeah. no-show, that's when I thumb through these things. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yes. But in it, and it was interesting because it was talking all about like parent involvement and the coaching. And mm-hmm. my, my, um, intern that just finished she was, you know, explaining to me, you know, that she'd read it and what it looks like. And I said, okay, that's fantastic. I said, but you have to take it a step further. For these medically fragile children that have in-home nursing around the clock, you can also learn from them. So where we Absolutely. Are, where we are, oh, my goodness. Yeah, because – and that one, that wasn't in the – that wasn't covered in the article, but I was like, but we're – 
I mean, I'm an anomaly and I know there's others out there that are anomalies. I don't treat that many children that have mild to moderate delays. Most of the patients on my caseload have severe and profound disabilities and they get, you know, multiple nurses or they have teams right. that come in. And right, right. I mean, I can go in, but it's not my job. I actually told a nurse this, this morning, I was like, I'm not going to feed her. My job is to advise on the strategies and can we progress the viscosity? Can we do this? I mean, it's not me right. and simply feeding a meal. Um, right. There's, but so when we coach, remember folks, you also need to learn from those that you're coaching. So it's a, it's a working conversation. Okay. Well, I think if we remember when we go to medical appointments ourselves with our children, with our parents, with our grandparents, we know the situation better than the doctor, the healthcare provider. And it may be a six-minute visit with a physician or it may be a 55-minute visit with a therapist. We still know the family member or better than they do. And that's the lens we have to put on as professionals, that we are working with the folks who know them best. We need to give them more resources, more guidance, more support, so they can do everything they need to help them grow in their development. Yes. I always try to explain it. I, I don't break bread with the babies. You break bread with the babies. You are the one right. that eats with them multiple meals. Um, right. Except for when I actually do break bread with the babies. And I mean, I've eaten some weird things with some of my patients. Of course you have. I, of course you have. I have one mom. That because you're showing mom and dad how to eat with the baby. Yes. Yes. But I won't right. eat prunes with children anymore. That's one thing. That oh, well, I you know, do. I don't know. Why not, Michelle? I mean, well, here's a good story there, but that's for adult beverages and not on this episode. Uh, <laughs> uh, next time I see you, how about that? I will plan on it. I'm going to ask you. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay. Moving along now that I'm blushing. All right. So um, this kind of stays on track a little bit. Feeding therapy. All right. So the next question comes from um, a place of concern. Um, And we have had numerous issues pop up in South Carolina. Um, Our licensure has not been updated in 35 years. So um, it's um, that has been, um, and I know that because it was 1983 and I was born that year. So I know that year. Um, But because of that, um, we do not have a well-defined SLPA scope of practice within our licensure because our fields have changed. And there are numerous states that do not offer SLPA licensure. And it's my understanding that, you know, ASH is in the process of issuing an SLPA certificate, which will kind of clarify and that's coming out in the next two years. But there has been issues and it has popped up when I'm lecturing, when I go to mm-hmm. states. I, so I know it's not unique just to the Southeast, but what is the role of an SLPA as it pertains to participating in an actual oropharyngeal dysphagia feeding therapy session versus, versus actually just feeding a patient commiserate with um, like a parapro feeding a child during lunchtime? You see what I'm saying? 
I do, and I, it's really the same. I think this is a good place where we see that our code of ethics gives us guidance. Um, if we go and look in the code of ethics, and if, if your listeners haven't taken a look at the code of ethics recently, just go to asha.org and click on ethics, and there are amazing, amazing resources there. But if you go to principle one, which is honor the welfare of the persons we serve professionally, you're going to see a few different rules of ethics that relate to the use of aids, assistance, technicians, support personnel, students, research interns, clinical fellows, or anybody else under our supervision. So it covers the waterfront. So it clearly would cover the use of an SLPA or if the speech-language pathologist is working with a classroom aide who's going to be following up with the feeding, um, I think this will apply. So it says that individuals who hold the CCC may delegate tasks related to the provision of clinical services to aids, assistance, etc., only if those persons are adequately prepared and appropriately supervised. Let me go over that again. Adequately prepared and appropriately supervised. I've had the opportunity to do a number of presentations with Emily Homer. She's a fabulous speech-language pathologist who wrote a great book on setting up um, a feeding and swallowing program in schools. And one of the things that is the big takeaway from my conversations with Emily over the years is the importance of the training program you have for everybody else who works with the children. That the our role is to ensure that they are prepared. So that means we teach them and then we do a competency check. So if you are a school-based SLP working in the early childhood special ed classroom, you should be the person who shows the special ed aide how to feed the child. Then you watch the special ed aide feed the child and make sure it's safe. The other thing that is absolutely critical is an emergency plan. What are the signs and symptoms that we have an emergency and what do we do when we have an emergency? And until we as professionals have assured that any aid, whatever their title is, has been trained and demonstrates competence and is prepared for emergencies, we need to be really careful transferring the authority for feeding to them. I'm just thinking of so many kids that I have. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, that we all do. Yeah. And it's it's scary, but... Nurses regularly treat them within their homes. And I mean, I've got numerous children that aren't old enough to go to school or the families elected not to go to the public schools, but they're going to, excuse me, private or home. Yeah. Yeah. Like a private daycare that has, you know, a tiered system or they have like typically developing children brought in and they're doing the feeding therapy. And, and that's a hard part of letting go. And, um, I, I have never, I just pulled her up on the wild world of the internet and I didn't realize I took, I think I took a class by this lady a very long time ago. Um, And it it was, there was some factoid that stuck out in my head that the lawsuits for dysphagia and the public schools are for um, it not being served. They're going that way that children are entitled to being able to eat during the day and if they have a dysphagia or a feeding aversion um, and the families sue because they're not offered those services, those families are winning because if you can't eat at school, that inhibits your ability to learn. Um, 
Yeah, the, the due process hearings tend to focus on absenteeism, that a lot of folks don't see feeding and swallowing as part of special ed. And I think if we go back and look at the other medical conditions in school, we see the template for how swallowing issues become um, an important area for special education, that it was pretty well established by um, the Garrett case oh, a couple decades ago that children that needed medical attention deserve to be at school, that we have kids with catheters, kids with trach tubes, and the responsibility is on the school to make sure that they are providing what's needed in order for the child to be at school. I think if we go back and look at the standard for special ed, that transportation is a service the school division provides to kids with disabilities. Why? We have to make sure they can get to school. So schools have to provide special handicapped accessible school buses, or they have to have an aid on the bus. They have to have special transportation, maybe a one-on-one. It's the same concept. The schools need to do what's necessary in order for the child to stay in school. I remember the first time I became concerned about feeding and swallowing issues in schools, I was doing a site visit um, for one of our students and went into a classroom for students with severe disabilities and listened to a, a young lady in a wheelchair, quadriplegic, who was um, fairly nonverbal, and her breathing was, Ugh, oh, uh, no. Oh, no. No, no, no. And, and I commented on it to the SLP, and she said, oh, she's like that all the time. And I said, well, what about her absenteeism? And, oh, she's out with pneumonia a lot. And I said, she's drowning. Yeah. Do you think maybe we should focus on her swallowing? So if you look at those due process hearings that you've mentioned, that's exactly what it is, that feeding and swallowing needs to be addressed in order to maintain access to be at school. Because if you don't do it right and the child gets respiratory issues, then the school is part of the reason why they are out of school. Those due process hearings have also identified the importance of an emergency plan. There are a couple I reviewed when I I last looked at it, probably about two years ago, that spoke to the importance of not just having the plan, but following the plan and the need to have a really large group of people who are trained. There was a very, very sad case where the school district had good training, special ed teacher was trained, the aide was trained, sadly both were out at the same day. A substitute was feeding the child who hadn't been trained. The child aspirated and unfortunately passed away. It just, it hurts your heart. The takeaway is we absolutely must have a very strong training regimen, number one, and very strong clarity on what the signs and symptoms of an emergency are and procedures of what to follow. There was a choking incident a couple years ago at a daycare, and none of the daycare yeah. workers were aware of um, CPR. Mm. And, and, like, they didn't know how to do the Heimlich maneuver. And a, it was typically developing child just in a, a daycare. And don't you know that, like, I went through, after hearing that on the news, made sure that all the daycare teachers in my baby's classrooms were CPR. I was yeah, like, you have to show me yeah. your card. I'm like, you have to show me your card. I won't sleep tonight. Show me your card. Yep. But, yep. Yes. Okay. Well then, all right. So then the, I guess the question that I have is on, so we have to have strategies. They have to be trained on how to do the feeding and there needs to be multiple team members in that school setting. And let's be honest, early intervention when we're doing home health, right. Those early intervention. Yeah. yeah, But those babies go to school and even within the world of early intervention, I mean, I see numerous children that go to the school during 
like a half day program and I see them after school. So, I mean, that three, four and five, that to me is still, we're, we're getting them early, but, um, in the home setting, I guess what has come up here, um, is that on the SLPA scope of practice, um, on the ASHA website, the ones that says responsibilities outside of the scope of practice, it says, hold on. I just scrolled too quickly. Um, it was perform procedures that require a high level of skill and it includes oral pharyngeal swallowing therapy with bolus material. So is that when the kid like advancing viscosities, doing those kind of things, doing trials is that would be where they can't go into the realm of the SLP. But if it's like consuming a meal that they've already been designated as safe for, that is within their scope. Is that the, difference? I think that's yeah. a, probably a good distinction. I'm going to go back to the code of ethics here. If you I, Previously, I read item E, rule E, rule F says, if we hold the CCC, we shall not delegate tasks that require the unique skills, knowledge, judgment, or credentials that are within our scope of practice. So, if it is a practice which we are uniquely qualified for, which is what is in our licensure, what's in our master's level training. We don't transfer that to somebody without that training. That's a violation of the code of ethics. It'd be a violation of the licensure law. So what does that mean? Okay, I've got to teach mom and dad how to feed the child. Um, we are not having mom and dad become therapists. We are coaching mom and dad on how to feed their child safely and in a manner which the child can develop but we are not preparing them to be therapists. It's a little different with mom and dad and in AIDS because aid is still an agent of us. It's like our long arm when we use an assistant. And then when we use that assistant, we absolutely cannot give them something which is unique to our scope of practice, which is exactly what you're saying. The assistant should not be identifying the thickener that we're using, the progression um, of how we are moving from liquids to solids Okay. That was, that was the point that I just wanted to make sure that was crystal clear in muddy Michelle land. Okay. Yeah, sure. This is clear. But we, I have one little guy I see every Monday afternoon and um, his mama makes really good organic period foods and I will eat those. Yummy. <laughs> but like, it's delightful. I had um, vegan Hawaiian barbecue on oh. <laughs> It sounds weird, but it was actually really good and it was great. Yeah. I was like, that's yummy. Um, you know, we, the moms who cook vegan do an amazing job. Do, she, I mean, she's like, I, she's like, I'm a California girl. She was like, you Southerners, everything's got to be barbecue. So I had to, you know, acclimate. Oh, so that's fun. Yeah. I'm like, all right, that works. But we did, we had an IEP meeting at the start of the year because it's for a five-year-old. Right. We did round the table trainings on like, this is what it looks like. Yeah. And I mean, they've got, and it was, it was lovely because he has two, his teacher and his parapro and the school nurse said that there's three in house that know how to feed him right. and work with him on, you know, his improving his self feeds. But, um, I love that analogy of the assistant or the aide is the, it's like you're a long arm. That's yeah. very, that's a lovely way of looking at it. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you got you. another that's, question for me. I have two more actually. Okay. So, um, all right. So this one has come up. Um, there was, um, 
a, a physical therapy individual, a PT that I saw was, um, um, they reported that they billed for attending a doctor's visit. And I was like, I don't think that's right. I think you need to go back and talk. You didn't actually do therapy in that session. You went with like, you know, like a, it was like a planning session, you know? So, uh, you know, I gave advice. I don't think you can bill for that. And it was a PT. It wasn't our, our surgeon, right. I mean, not our personage. And, um, it has me wondering. I mean, I regularly go to IEP meetings for my patients or those transition meetings when we're going from early intervention to that those initial. And I've never billed for that. I just chalked it up to it's continuity of care. Right. You know? So are oh, you're doing we, the right thing. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. I'm like, you know, and my husband's like, really? Because you did like three of those this week and, you know, we're, we, we have to pay daycare. <laughs> I'm like, I can't bill for that. But well, and, and I think it depends on who you're billing to. For example, if you are billing insurance, you need to follow, or Medicaid, you have to follow their requirements and they don't allow for administrative time to be billed for. They expect it to be an evaluation or treatment. And of course, the caveat is, to that is every insurance policy and every Medicaid policy is different. So don't assume one thing is right and one thing is wrong because it's true with Health South. It might not be true with Anthem. It may not be true in North Carolina versus South Carolina Medicaid. Um, that's just a key issue that nothing is universal when it comes to billing. However, if an early intervention um, speech language pathologist is contracting with an agency and the agency is billing insurance, then it may be very appropriate to bill the agency for the time you spend at those meetings. So. It kind of depends on who is it you're billing. If you're billing insurance, private or public, you follow the rules um, of the public and private insurance carrier. That means it's direct client services. If you're billing an agency, a school district, an early intervention program, then you look to your contract. And does your contract allow you to bill for time spent at transition meetings, IEP meetings, IFSP meetings, and the like? Doctor's offices. Exactly. Doctor's visits. Right. And that would be like admin work. Yep. Okay. All right. So then I'm going to continue doing the good old thing that I'm doing and just, just not billing. <laughs> or get your contracts with the agency. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, yeah. I'm, I am a single shack of me, myself, and I. So, right. you yeah. know, that, that, this is good old Heartwood. <laughs> yeah. oh, okay. All right. Now, this is. Uh, Michelle, let me go on to that a little bit further. I did mention not billing for IFSPs, and I know the practice that many folks do is that the IFSP is developed during the assessment planning period. And so while the team is doing the assessment, they are at the same time writing the IFSP. And so that is billable in most situations. Again, check the provider um, to see if that's billable because it is sharing the results of your assessment with the family in the midst of the assessment. However, a freestanding meeting that has no relationship to an assessment is probably not going to be billable to any public or private insurance. Okay. Uh, Yes. Yep. Yes. I'm like, all I can say to this is yes. That makes perfect sense. Yes. (laughs) Uh, We, I I have had to request IFSP meetings to get everybody up on um, the same page, especially like, I mean, sometimes I get called in just to do feeding and swallowing and there's another clinician and they're doing language. Well, if we're all doing different things, then 
you know, and I was told by um, a service coordinator one time after one of those meetings, she was like, this technically isn't billable because we didn't change the IFSP. And I was like, okay. And there was mixed emotions about that around the room. And I'm like, look, bottom line is we got on the same page for the kid. Whether right. or not we changed IFSP, we still do what was right. We're doing the, the right thing for the child. And and that's what we should do. Exactly. So um, it all works out in the end. It does. And yep. we're in this for the children and their families. Yes. And we do not that, tend to choose this field because we want to be wealthy. <laughs> no. <laughs> we're called to be healers. That's one of our exactly. gifts. And exactly. And this is, yeah. Um, <laughs> because, yeah, no, definitely not for money. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, now, the next question, this is, man, I have had some I have had some interesting cases in the wide world of early intervention that have left me um, um, not feeling always the safest. Okay. Um, I once went into a patient's trailer and there was one entrance in and out and a 350-pound man stood between me and the doorway while a very large drug deal was going on. Wow. And he said, is there a problem there? Miss Michelle. And I said, oh, no, sir, honey, you handle your business. I'm going to go in the back and do my therapy. So I went in the back and I did therapy with this special baby. I came out and he said, and I'll never forget this. He goes, you're one cool speech teacher. Would you like a little something for the road? I said, no, sir, I'm, I am quite all right. And thank you. I will see you all next week. And I smiled and I walked out the door and I was internally shaking like a leaf. I'll bet and you I, were. I mean, I was, I was the epitome of Southern grace, which is really saying something because if you met me like people I am a klutz walking right yeah and um I made it to my car I went around the corner pulled into a very safe secure gas station and immediately called 911 and DSS and my supervisor and said I'm not going back this is what's going on exactly because I could have died like I could have died could exactly I mean so it gets back to the, and somebody goes, but you didn't give 30 days notification. That's a client abandonment. I was like, I feel like that's an exception. <laughs> I feel like this is, this was clinician safety, but w- when is it client abandonment? And when is it like I could have died? <laughs> so where is that? <laughs> okay. Um, Michelle, you've got a really interesting issue there and you did the right thing. Obviously you protect yourself, you you protect your own safety and we have to think about client safety as well, but there is nothing in the code of ethics or in any licensure law, which expects somebody to work in an unsafe situation. I think most folks are going to do what I'm sure you did is that you brainstorm with the team. Is there another place we can provide services that's safer? That's an issue that pops up here occasionally that we have clinicians that just aren't, do not feel comfortable going into that environment. And the first thing that happens is the service coordinator and the professional, the therapist, um, get together and think, is there an alternate location that is a natural environment? And um, it's my understanding that in most states, if the natural environment is unsafe, that is a reason to go to the old traditional clinician's office environment. But clearly, there's a whole lot of documentation that has to go into that. And it's not just because somebody's uncomfortable. We know a lot of folks that come from middle-class background are a little squeamish going into significant poverty. And that's really not what this is about. This is about significant safety. So what about the concept of client abandonment? Um, if 
any of the listeners wonder, can I do this? Is Can I go for this new job? Can I stop serving that client? Is that client abandonment? If you go to the ASHA website and just put ethics in the search and go to ethics resources. And then on that page, you're going to see a ton of great resources and click on issues in ethics. And there is an issues in ethics statement on client abandonment. And it was updated in 2017. And it talks about reasons a clinician might decide to end their relationship with a client. And it says there's nothing inherently unethical about a departure. And I'm going to read from it. Professionals must be mindful of the fact that a departure may result in former clients being left without appropriate care. It is therefore imperative that in such transitional situations, we maintain our focus on the welfare of the client. So the conversation that you, I'm sure, had when you called the service coordinator was, how do we take care of this student's needs, this little one's needs when the situation is unsafe. So that's meeting the obligation that you're looking out for the welfare of the client while taking care of your own safety. And that's what you did, right? Um, they actually, well, yeah. in truth, no, DSS went in and removed the And took care of, well, ultimately that became it because if DSS removed the child, the child was put into a safer environment and I'm sure the child was back into early intervention after that. I mean, it was early intervention on the other side of the state because it was a medically fragile, which is, which is very difficult. It's very difficult to find a medically fragile foster home. Um, Yes. Yes. I'm sure that was, um, but you know, I have had other cases where I was working with the patient and, um, a family member was HIV positive and it was yeah. um, incredible poverty in the home. And one yeah. day yeah. Um, uh, the family member's toenail fell off walking and blood <laughs> went everywhere. And right. luckily, I mean, myself and the student that I had with me at the time um, did not, I mean, nobody had exposure or nothing like that, but you know, I brought it up to the intervention. So I was like, it's not safe. I was like, there's, um, rat feces. There's all of these. And mm-hmm. it's like, it's not mm-hmm. even safe for the child to live there. And I, I am right. well aware poverty is not a crime. Uh, but right. it, it's, these kind of things happen. I was like, this isn't safe. We right. have to get this kid into a clinic. Also the child needs the world exposure to getting to a clinic, you know, because that's, right. um, the, the, World knowledge grows word knowledge. I remember that from grad right. school. And so um, we ended up right. having to make those kind and I don't have a clinic. So in the process, you know, the child transferred to a different therapist, but um, it was what was best because the home environment just physically wasn't safe. And I saw the cleanliness that occurred after the blood spill and it was right. not. And, and right. that those are, as a clinical supervisor, it's always difficult to prep and prepare interns and observers it is. for home it health is. because we come with, for the most part, um, mm-hmm. standard, you know, two parent, two kid, middle income worldview. Yeah. You're, you're exactly right that it's really often very hard for us to shift to a different worldview. And I want to put a, a real plug in for the service coordinators in early intervention. Um, my experience is that these folks come from a background that have an amazing sensitivity to families and family cultures, and they are amazing problem solvers. 
and I'm sure like all professions, there's a continuum. But the ones I've had the pleasure of working with really fit that particular um, model. And they often come from the field of social work, but not exclusively. They're, they're human service trained professionals. And I think that we need to remember as speech language pathologists that our expertise is speech, language, feeding, swallowing. Their expertise is family systems and making services work. And that's the title, service coordination. Their role is to make sure everything is fitting together in a in a nice, smooth puzzle, that they're not putting the puzzle pieces together in the wrong places. And so it's a great opportunity for us to follow that feature of the code of ethics and our scope of practice of collaborating with other professionals, that we don't want to step over into their role in the same way we don't want them to step into ours, and we need to do it collaboratively for the best of the client. Yes, I am thinking of... Um, th- my son's early interventionist. And when yeah. there's EI was like an honorary baby whisperer and oh it, yeah. yeah. And held me together when it was hearing loss, hearing loss, hearing loss. And I just remember her yeah. guiding me through as um as a mom mourning the fact that my child can't hear, as a speech pathologist thinking yeah. Bear's language is going, he's, well, this is going to impact reading and writing and all the things. And then yeah. being there to celebrate when surgeries were successful and we could hear and we were talking and they, they bear the yeah. brunt of angry days, tearful days. And then, but man, those joyful days, those are, those yeah. things kick, you know what? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, they're amazing professionals. And that's the joy of why we do what we do in our field. That's why the money doesn't matter because of the joy when we see those breakthroughs. Yeah, that's, um, <laughs> there's a, there's a hashtag for that. Did you know? <laughs> oh, what there's, is it? Um, hashtag choose joy and hashtag, um, SLPs of faith. And I think those two are <laughs> wonderfully applicable. Absolutely. Yeah. Choose joy. Yes. Oh, this is wonderful. Okay. Um, is there anything else that those were all the questions that I had? Is there anything that you want to add or, um, touch base on before we switch over to question? No, the, um, well, maybe just to reiterate what I mentioned about the amazing resources on the ASHA website. I'm sure your um, listeners have heard about going to the ASHA practice portal, which keeps up-to-date information on evidence-based practice. Um, but because ethics is kind of that word that we go, ooh, about, as you mentioned in your intro, people may not be spending as much time on the ASHA ethics page. And um, it's one of the first places I've tell folks to go to when they've got that knot in their stomach of this doesn't feel right, that the members of the Board of Ethics have written this whole host of issues and ethics statement based on what people tend to have the most knots in their stomach about. And so it gives you guidance on how to approach it. There are also a lot of wonderful resources. They've had some some web chats on some of the thorny ethical issues, some thorny school-based issues, some thorny issues about productivity in skilled nursing facilities. So um, it's a really good go-to place. So I just want to put in that last plug for that for folks as they're just wondering, what do I do now? Um, I have the ASHA app where I can post questions. It's the ASHA community app. And because I'm a SIG 13 member, um, is it, I'm assuming, but correct me if I'm wrong, can we post um, questions in there for folks to answer as well? They, you guidance? certainly can. It's kind of like calling Ash's action line that they will probably refer you when um, 
my last conversation, it's probably been a couple years with the folks in the ethics department, they answered about 3,000 questions via email and phone in comparison with a couple handfuls of ethics cases that were adjudicated. That really speaks to the fact that the folks in ethics are fabulous resources. I had a conference a conversation with a colleague yesterday um, about an ethical challenge um, that she had. And she said, well, I just spoke to Asha and Asha said this. And I said, trying to uncover it, it didn't really sound like an answer from the ethics folks. Well, I realized that she asked the question of the action center in such a way that the action center went into another direction. So if somebody's got an ethics issue, I recommend contacting the Action Center, contacting ethics at ASHA, and then being real clear in your um, subject line or in the first couple sentences in the phone call, I'm calling about an ethical dilemma, and then they'll refer you over to the folks in the ethics department. Okay, folks, in case you did not know it, ASHA has um, the, the Action Line, the Action Center. You, the phone number to reach them is one 800 498 2071. And y'all, I have that phone number saved in my cell phone because I've had to call for so many things from um, coding, from uh, CPT codes, ICD-10 codes, uh, questions about convention, questions about supervision, and they're there. So use them and they're very kind. Also, for what it's worth, we need a new song when they put you on hold because <laughs> we've heard the same <laughs> song for a really long time. So like, I know a guy who can help with that, but like, just say. Um, <laughs> Michelle, I want to... Um- Build on that. If you go to asha.org and scroll to the bottom, on the bottom right, it's got contact us and there's a button you can click on to email them. Perfect. Awesome. Well, Dr. Power Defer, thank you for all the things for a multitude of years and just being you. So thank you. Thank you for today. Oh, it's been a pleasure chatting with you this afternoon. Thank you. All right. Um, let me not leak now. Um, on that note, we are um, almost out of time. But uh, before we switch over to questions, I just wanted to wish my families and friends out there and all you lovely listeners a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And as a reminder, we will not be having an episode next week as I'm taking the week off to be with our goose and a bear and do the family thing. So I will catch y'all uh, on Tuesday, January 1st at 8 p.m. when we cover feeding matters and how it matters to you with the lovely Patty Minicucci. Um, Patty, I hope to God I'm saying your last name right. And uh, also, for anybody who's super nosy, January 1st, next Tuesday, will be my eight-year wedding anniversary. Whoop, whoop. So I'm taking off for Christmas, but working on my anniversary. Pass no Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Hold the line and let's switch over. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember... Feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.